EMS on the Mountain is an entertainment, educational and commentary product recorded by Sean and Mike and produced by them. Nothing recorded by Sean, Mike or any of the guests of the show is endorsed nor authorized by their respective employers or agencies unless explicitly outlined. All commentary and statements made are their own. Always follow your respective medical protocols. Nothing said on this platform should be considered medical direction. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Another episode of EMS on the Mountain. And in case you were curious, Mike's terrible countdowns will never have a job with NASA. So we got that going for us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> He's laughing because he knows what I'm talking about. Good thing I don't aspire to work for NASA because you're not wrong. Anyways, you made me thought again. Hello. What? Yes. Greetings. Uh, so today, uh, what are we going to talk about? Random shite. So this is just going to be that random. Is... <laughs> That is now officially the name of this episode. Random shite. <laughs> yeah, sure. Here in America, shite's not a Here bad word. in America. Word. Random shite in America. I don't know if it's a bad word anywhere else, but yeah, this is no, again, zero structure to this episode. So this might be 15 minutes of Mike and Sean just talking about stupid shit, or this could be an hour of Mike and Sean's talking about stupid shit. Either way. Either way, it's going to be shit. So... What kind of led to this is, of course, the, the social medias, the bane of human existence in the modern era, the downfall of all yes. civilization and humanity as we know it. Just, I don't engage with people on social media ever, despite my great desire to do. I just can't feed into that machine. But I like to look at the pictures and see some of the shit other people post. And this is also drawn from personal experience and observations, not just the things I've witnessed on the interwebs or, or as the kids call it on the line, I believe. Um, on the lines. Yes. Yes. When you post things on the line. So just some of the stuff in, in the SAR and wilderness rescue and wilderness EMS type communities of things people put on there. And it makes you sometimes wonder like, why are you doing that? like, I, I don't understand. And I'd like to reach out to some of these people. And so if you're one of these people, I would absolutely love to hear about it, send us an email and tell us like why you or your team has a policy for whatever one of these topics is that strikes a chord, or maybe you're like in full agreement and go, dude, right? I don't get it either. So off the bat, we're going to lead with one of my all-time favorites. And I know Mike loves this one too, is the SAR teams that wear climbing helmets all the time. Why? What is it you're doing walking through the woods that requires you to be wearing a helmet? Is your environment, in fact, so hazardous that you must be wearing a helmet at all times in order to prevent you from being knocked and rendered unconscious? 
Like, I just, I don't get it. And you'll find pictures like get on the internet and get on, you'll see teams in the desert, the high desert, not like sandy desert, high desert plane stuff, like wearing helmets while walking through. And there's nothing above four foot high as far as any vegetation or, or fall hazard stuff. Like, why are you wearing a helmet? Like why, why in God's name are you wearing a helmet? Is that just a place to attach your headlamp to? Because my headlamp comes with a strap that goes around my head. They're called right? head lamps, not helmet lamps. And so it's just like one of those observations of like, why? And then along with that, you have to think about, do you understand how climbing helmets are designed? Like how are they protecting your head? Because the vast majority of actual climbing helmets that people are wearing are not rated for lateral impacts, meaning it's not designed to provide any protection to your dome from, say, like a fall or something striking you in the side of the head. Those are designed for climbers when things fall from above you and take a direct impact to the top of your skull and direct those forces away and prevent you from having a rock burrow its way through your brain. So I'm always fascinated by these teams and these individuals that wear their climbing helmets like all the time. My next favorite, and these, this applies to a lot of the folks that Mike and I end up working with on the regular, is they will carry those climbing helmets in their, in their backpacks and their SAR packs on the way to a patient for, we'll say, a, a, a recovery of some sort you know, where we're doing a carry out or something. And then once we load the patient into the Stokes basket, the helmets come on because suddenly there's now a hazard of things falling from the sky and striking them dead on the trail. My, my response to that one is, if it's so deadly with a patient in the Stokes, why did you not wear your helmet to walk to the patient? Yeah, it's, are things really falling out of the sky that much? What's, is this just one of those? organizational policies of let's cover our ass because we told you to wear a helmet and eye protection and always have your earplugs in because what if there's suddenly a loud noise that might come around and make beef? I, I just, it baffles me. I don't understand it. I've asked some folks in varying organizations, like, cool, why are you wearing a helmet? We're supposed to. Yeah, I get you're supposed to, but why? It, oh, it's... And nobody can ever answer that. Oh, well, it's uh, for safety and risk mitigation. From what? Like, I'm all about it. You're working in a vertical environment. I'll even toss you a bone and saying, if you're working near tensioned rope systems, where should you have a catastrophic failure, perhaps that will help save you when some random carabiner or end of a rope comes whipping around and hits you in the head. Um, but let's look at the design of most climbing helmets. Even some of the good helmets, like a Team Wendy, right? An actual backcountry SAR Team Wendy helmet that's actually rated for lateral impact, right? It's still only covering half your dome and your face. Okay. Thank God you had your helmet on. That That's what's going to save your life when that event happens. Uh, I don't know. Mike, your, th your thoughts on the helmets and not helmets well, of this world? I have lots of thoughts, as you yeah. know. Uh, I've recently been described by a coworker as one of the most opinionated people in the world. So here's my opinion. You're right. They're dumb. Helmets aren't dumb when used for the appropriate purpose of the helmet. However, 
wearing a helmet for the purpose of wearing a helmet doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, bump helmets, bump style helmets, I will say, are made for bumping your head. Bumping your head is a thing that I guess could happen, but then put on a bump helmet. It's sort of in the same vein. Like, I guess I can draw like a, a, a loose corollary here. A, a lot of, of law enforcement agencies and, you know, SWAT teams were always wearing ballistic helmets and they, they would strap 47 pounds of helmet and gear to their head. And a lot of teams have gone away from that. Cause they're like, dude, if you just catch around in the dome, like it's, it's your day. Yeah. Especially oh, different discussion, but most of those ballistic helmets aren't rated for. They're not rated for rifle rounds anyway. Yeah. I own helmets. I own a number of helmets, right? I own a lot of gear. I wear helmets when it's appropriate to wear a helmet, but I have yet to figure out why uh, wearing a helmet is a good idea. Now I will tell you, I will, I actually know a dude who had a helmet on because policy when operating in a non-vertical environment, but he was under a helicopter and the helicopter snapped the top the, the uh, Oh, that's cute. For those just listening, uh, I moved my hand. And a thumbs up appeared on the video. It was weird. Um, and I can't get one. That's bullshit. Yeah. You lose. Um, anyway, he was operating underneath a helicopter at the time. And the rotor wash from the helicopter during the operation snapped off the top third of a tree and it whacked him in the head. And had he not had a helmet on, that could have been a serious traumatic injury. But I would also argue that when operating underneath the rotor wash of a helicopter would be in a, an applicable time when one would want to have protection on their head for moments like that. Yeah. See, and that's makes sense, right? Some, a helmet, yep. some iPro cause th things are whipping around. Branches do get blown loose. I'm on board. Yeah, that happens. Yeah. Um, but also if your policy has to say this and this is completely a micism. This is not in any way, manner, shape, or form guidance for anyone that wants to stay gainfully employed. <laughs> However, if your agency's policy is to do a thing because you know, lawyers, well, guess you have to decide whether you're going to protest like attorneys deciding how you do your job in the backcountry and in the woods or not. There's a lot of agencies. There's a lot of there's a lot of fire agencies. The minute you get out of the engine, you got to have your helmet on because you know, a car might hit you. And I've never yeah. seen a firefighter put the chin strap on a helmet on. Nor is a, a fire helmet ever protect you from anything like you know, your head careening into like, the pavement after a car struck you at a car accident scene. Especially so, with the surrounding brim, no chance of neck trauma. No, nothing. Uh, I understand it's for identification and understanding who's in charge and HMFIC and all of those things. But come on, like. If anybody's arguing it's for safety, your helmet's not staying in your head if you get hit by a moving vehicle. It's just not happening. Uh, to this one, I'm going to say, kind of silly. Uh, I put on a helmet when I need it. I have actually found, uh, and, and those of us that keep up with the science understand that the covering or not covering of the head is not as nearly associated with the ability to retain or um, expel heat and cool from the body as appropriate. But I don't care, man. There is a certain aspect to it. And wearing a helmet in the middle of the summer while hiking in the mid-Atlantic heat sucks. And yeah. it doesn't provide me any appreciable benefit other than making me hotter. And that's not good. But, uh, I take it off. I don't wear it. Yeah. It's just not how I roll. 
So there you go, folks. Helmets. And in all honesty, like seriously, if you're on one of these teams that your policy is you enter the backcountry and you're always wearing a helmet, I would love to hear a legitimate discussion as to why. You know, if yeah. it's just a, well, this is just what we do, then cool, got it. Right? There's a lot of that that goes around in rules are rules, I guess. Rescue stuff, right? Yeah. If that's the policy, because, well, somebody once thought it was a good idea. And I swear to God, half the time people think it's because it looks cool. Like, how are you going to know you're a SAR guy if you don't have your helmet on? But that's a whole different issue. Sean, the answer to that is all the Velcroed that. patches and stickers they're wearing as well. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and we know all about the patches. Uh, yeah, we do. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to get our patch jackets done in time for this year's course, but. Uh, that's a good point. We should get to work on that. What do you got? I will say this. Uh, I do have kind of an analogy here. Uh, I'm stealing it from somebody else. They're going to laugh when they hear this. Uh, this was actually said about people wearing a mask alone in a moving car in a national park. But wearing a helmet to go hiking, to go do a thing that is going to take you two hours to get to it first, is kind of like wearing a condom to masturbate. There's just <laughs> no point. <laughs> yeah. It's Easier cleanup, man. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so I've just, so listener now count that we've has gone just there. gone down by three. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, wear a helmet when you need to wear a helmet. But if anybody out there can give us a good reason, I want to hear it. I truly, truly, I, like this sounds like yeah, no I want to hear it. What yeah, is the point like, of wearing a helmet when you're hiking into the rescue? Now, if you're going to send us emails that say, oh, I wear it because it's easier than keeping it in my pack. Fine. Shut up. I don't want to hear it. If that I is mean, your cool, storage that's... location for your helmet, sweet. Also, by the way, if the helmet's on your head, the buckle better be strapped because uh, if the buckle ain't buckled and it's just swinging loose, then your helmet is nothing but a projectile when you trip and fall. So yeah, uh, if it's on your head, make sure it stays on your head. And if that's where you choose to store your helmet during the transit into the wilderness, sweet. You do you, boo. But if there is a reason that somebody is wearing helmets all the time, that is actually to provide safety. I want to hear about it because I, I can't think of a time and a place when that's appropriate. Yeah. All right. And, so, and on that note, we're going to leave helmets alone. So a couple of other observations I've seen, uh, and these have probably been made not so much necessarily influenced a bit on the social media side, um, but more direct observation of working with some other teams over the last decade or so doing SAR work. People that go out into the woods with the intention of providing assistance, whether that's medical rescue, you're just literally looking for the lost person, right? If you're entering into the, what we're going to call the backcountry, and you are really taking just the absolute bare minimum of stuff to make you comfortable, a couple of Snickers bars, two bottles of water, a headlamp, and I don't know, a raincoat, maybe. In my opinion, you're wrong, right? There's, I think, a certain minimum gear set that wow. you need to have on your person. And I'm not going to dictate that to anybody, right? If you really think that two you know, 16-ounce bottles of water is enough for you to get through a rescue, provide assistance to somebody that you're there to render aid to, whether it's a lost person, an injured person, whatever it is, a headlamp, maybe some spare batteries, and you just stuff them in your cargo pocket and go, good on you. I want to work there, right? I want to do rescues in that place. Uh, I just, it's just one of those things. And there was a rescue Mike and I were involved with 
where we weren't really required to do anything but provide the tech rescue supervision piece to it. And at one point when all the rope work was basically done, we were just kind of cruising down the hill with everybody else on the carry out. It was like one of those, holy crap, man, half these guys don't even have a bottle of water with them. And it was one of those. We started IVs on that rescue as well, even though we were just there for rope stuff too. But whatever. Yeah. yeah I digress. That's, yeah. That's a different story, right? <laughs> I was like, okay, these people came out and these are all technically trained responders at one level or another. And it's, and they came out so ill-prepared, like the assumption is I'm going to walk whatever distance to where the patient or victim is at. We're going to put them in a basket and we're going to hike them out and it's going to take me 45 minutes. Hmm? No, where Mike and I operate, nothing is a 45 minute event, like nothing, right? You... Like a 45 minute event is somebody that's literally a half mile or less down a trail and on a well-groomed trail. Folks, if you're going out there and you're not prepared to spend, I won't say you have to go prepared for the emergency overnight bivouac necessarily, but if you're not going out there, at least prepared as well as a good day hiker with their 10 essentials and such. Oh, Sarah, say, well, you might want to rethink your position as a wilderness responder, regardless of you know, volunteer, career, paid, medical, just SAR, tech rescue, whatever you're doing, if you're not out there and ready to be out there for several hours, in my personal opinion, you're wrong. Like, things happen. Things take longer than they need to. Uh, you could have been one of those guys. It's like, oh, this is going to be a simple carry out. We just got to get up this trail. Baskets are on its way. By the time we get there, we just need to be the manpower and help carry them out. Well, then something happens. You know, maybe the patient takes a turn for the worse, and now they require more medical care that maybe we have to do a little stabilization a bit longer on scene. Uh, or maybe there was a piece of gear that was missing. Uh, there's another rescue Mike and I went on where people got up there and was like, cool, you got this. And it's normally contained in with the Stokes basket. And they were like, oh, we took that bag out. We didn't know what that was. It's all the patient securing materials. So it's like, all right, everybody empty your packs. Who's got tubular nylon and stuff? And so it took longer yeah. because somebody didn't realize that that particular pack that's labeled and attached to the Stokes basket is supposed to stay with the Stokes basket. It happens, right? That's another one of those things where I lost my, my foam mat and some other stuff and it disappeared with a patient on a rescue, which mm -hmm. is cool. I, I can go get more, but again, that's one of those things where it's like, me, Mike, and one or two other people, the only people that had stuff. And I'm not saying you have to be, you know, hit that Eagle Scout level of maybe I'll need this just in case. And I carry one of all the things that's, that gets a little extreme, right? And we, and that's a whole nother issue you have. If you're bringing like all the stuff all the time, right? If you're carrying yeah. a sleeping bag in a tent with you, dude, like you better be actually bivouacking overnight. Otherwise you're just carrying a lot of extra stuff and weight. But having a bare minimum set of kit, right? Like something to actually take care of yourself six to eight hours, maybe longer, I think is where it needs to be. I think one of the organizations Mike and I used to work with, I think it was like a 12 hour window. Like you had to be able to self-sustain for about 12 hours. So if your team was out mm -hmm. there on a task and you got stuck for whatever reason, you were supposed to be able to you know, keep yourself and your team healthy and happy. You know, you're not necessarily going to be comfortable in the warmest necessarily, but right. you can keep yourselves protected from the elements, you've got water, you've got food for a 12 hour period. 
It's really not that long if you think about it. And it doesn't really require you to have a lot of stuff, but it requires you to actually bring the stuff, right? And I know a lot of folks that work in certain environments where you're pretty open terrain, right? You might be somewhere out West where, hey, we're on ATVs and I don't really have to take anything. This really doesn't apply to you, right? You get on the ATV, you got a couple of bottles of water, you got a headlamp, maybe you got some <clears throat> protective layers for whatever anticipated weather might be. You zip out there, you load up a patient or the lost person and you zip on back. Fantastic. You've got what you need. Yep. Um, but for those of us that operate on foot in the backcountry, everything always takes longer than you think it does. And you got to be a prepared to extend your stay. Not, we're not just talking about the, the providers and patient care, right? We're talking about you as an individual. Like, Jesus, Mike and I have shown up just because of our primary role 99% of the time as being the EMS providers. A lot of times people don't know how much of a medical response they need until somebody gets out there, makes contact with the patient. And it's like, oh yeah, this is way worse than we originally heard. We need this. And so guys like Mike and I suddenly get an alert and we head out. And then one of the first things I almost always hear when I get on scene is, hey, do you have any water you can give me? And I got my water. No, I don't have extra water for you. I didn't carry extra water for you. Did you request extra water? Oh, no. How much did you, oh, I just brought a bottle with me. Oh, bro, you're going to be thirsty. I'll yeah, give you an ID nice. later too. Um, <laughs> we've, we've shown up and there are times I get it when there's a long carry out going on and some people show up later and they bring extra water and snacks for the cruise because maybe yeah. you've burned through your stuff, but at least you started with something. So anyway, it's, it's about enough of that. What are your thoughts on, on the minimalist um, level of preparedness, Mike? So I was going to wait till the end for this one, but I'm going to toss this in now because it's related. For me, the thing I don't get or I, I struggle with, per the theme, right? Pet peeves, plan. Like if you would spend some time making a plan for things to not go as well as you had planned, you would probably plan differently, bring some darn water. So all mm. of this kind of goes back to... Uh, do you have a plan for if it doesn't go so well? And I meet so many people in this genre that are like, yeah, we don't really have a contingency plan or a, what if Timmy is, it's always Timmy, damn Timmy, yeah. son of a bitch. Timmy, the SAR guy ends up you know, a mile in somewhere and breaks an ankle. Does anybody have anything for that patient or him? What if it turns out we actually do get, lost now people are supposed to know how to read maps and do the things but everyone relies on gps nowadays what happens if it turns out the weather changes or the thing just takes longer than expected or something else unexpected happens the the realistic one that happens all the time in this line of work is oh they found the dude they're looking for now they need more help to get him out of the predicament he is in all of you folks scattered here and there looking for said missing individual, please coalesce on this point. Mm, and that's mm -hmm. like you, your task just went from a four hour task to a 12 hour task. And you got asked to go from where you are to where yeah. they are and then help get them out. And that is going to take four hours. So, yeah, that's a great, but point. all of this fundamentally comes back to a plan. Do you have a plan? And sometimes that plan should include, I'm not going to take that because I don't need it. For example, 
I've never gone on a rescue with four liters of fluid, like just not going to happen. But people often say, oh, it's just an, a quick out and back. And that's when you get into trouble because you didn't have a plan. You didn't have the contingency plan of, heck, I, I can think of times in recent history where I've gone on things and the rescuers didn't even have a backpack. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is they just tossed some trail mix and a single bottle of water into a cargo pocket and off they went. And it was like mind-blowing. Yeah. We can boil this all the way down to, like, do you have the extra batteries that are in the list of like, every good SAR team thing? <laughs> I often end up, in fact, now that I'm thinking about this, I think I recently lost a headlamp. Uh, I end up bringing extra headlamps and then they get consumed. Um, but even yeah. in the planning thing, let's go back to my fundamental thing. Do you have a plan for how you're going to get more stuff if it turns out things changed? You'll remember the one time not too long ago where I actually gave direction to a team to go get the secondary bag out of the vehicle that was pre-bagged and pre-planned for the, oh, this is going to be an overnight event. We're going to need more mm -hmm. clothes. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have the plan ahead of time, you don't think through the, the contingency plans, you're SOL, and it is embarrassing. If you're in this line of work in any way, manner, shape, or form, to be the one that needs the rescuing. Okay. So uh, make a plan. <laughs> oh, and so I will, I'll throw this out there. The guys, uh, Chris Gibson, who used to host, well, I'm sure still hosts, but they haven't put anything out where I had the Red Med podcast, right? Yeah. This is one of my absolute favorite former wilderness and Austin medicine podcasts. Uh, it's unfortunate he doesn't publish as much as he used to. But one of the things I can't remember if it's in, the Red Med course, or just something he said on one of his podcasts, or it's in the book they have, is the rescuer never needs rescuing. And that is something you actually really need to take to heart uh, because your whole point of existence is to be the point of aid for somebody. And if you suddenly require the aid, you're not super helpful and useful. Now things happen. People get hurt, right? Like Mike and I mm -hmm. had both taken a bad step and suddenly been kind of hobbling our way out. Now, fortunately, it was never when we were responsible for a patient or anything like that. Um, and we always joked that if something happens, you guys keep going, I'll crawl my way out. And people like, oh yeah, hey man, if you get hurt, maybe we'll send somebody back for you tomorrow. And that's really the mentality of, yeah, man, I got it, right? Because the rescue itself needs to keep going. Nobody's going to stop because you weren't prepared unless right. you become a, a, a legitimate medical patient, right? So if you're suddenly just, you're now getting wet because you decided a raincoat was too heavy, or you just didn't want to put it in your bag for whatever reason, and you're cold and shivering, but you haven't hit that hypothermic step off well, your shivering. You probably are, but mm -hmm. yeah, man, you're just going to be wet. Keep walking, keep that body heat going. We'll see you at the end. Yeah. All kinds of other things that could go in with that. Right. But yeah, so that's that, right? So, we'll leave that alone. Don't be the one that needs rescuing. Yeah, so I, you remember that. The rescuer never needs rescuing. Yeah. You need to be, at least have your minimalist, and again, a bottle of water, maybe your headlamp, and a Snickers is not, is not meeting the minimalist mark unless you are really ATV bound and you know for a fact you're not going to break down and get stuck longer than you plan to. Yeah, and so, true that. We'll stop discussing that one there.
yeah, we'll leave that one there. The last thing I'm going to bring up, and this is more to the, some of the aspects with the tech rescue side. And as we talked about, and I think one of maybe the first episode of the year, they're already, I'm already forgetting them. We're going to do a little bit more discussion on some tech rescue topics this year. We're going to make Mike actually dump his, his brain. Talk about things right? he knows. <laughs> and I would say that I'm an amateur in the aspect, but. Um, You're not. But here's a, and this one always baffles me. And this is just an observation. You can always like, especially on social media, when you see the pictures of people, like when they post pictures of their us in action shots, right? Which cool. Um. I wish I had a dedicated public affairs person to take pictures of me while I'm doing this work, but turns out that I have other priorities and I don't ever get pictures taken of myself when we're actually on these rescues. That's why you guys never really see hardly any pictures of us when we're doing rescue and other operations. It's just, we very seldom ever get a chance to do it. It's happened a couple of times, but not very often. Yeah, technically anyway, we're nope. doing work. It's a thing. Yeah. yeah. I digress. But it's like, you can kind of look at what's, and uh, this is one of those, hey, we showed up with like half inch line and a bunch of hardware and like, just all the crazy gadgets that are out there. Uh, and man, if you're in the world of rope rescue, there is so much stuff that is out there now. Like so many, so like battery powered winches and crazy stuff, right? That aren't, that are like made for rope rescue stuff. Yep. Uh, but one of my things is you can almost, you can pretty easily tell folks that have trained from more, uh, somebody whose primary instructor was initially on what we'll call more the industrial side of technical rescue, like the fire rescue community, vice those who grew up in a wilderness and backcountry rope rescue, technical rescue world. And it's just one of those observations when you start seeing like big half inch lines and all of the kit carried in big multiple bags and everything set up and all of a sudden everybody's wearing large industrial harnesses and things you're kind of like, where are you going in the backcountry with all of this kit? And then you learn that a lot of these places are super wide, well-developed trails that it's, they don't have to, it, it goes in with that minimalist. We're not taking a lot of stuff with us because I'm carrying all this rope stuff. They yep. don't have to because these trails are so wide and where they might actually need to do the rope work when they get there. I'm not arguing the fact that they do need to do some sort of technical rescue to access or recover patients. It, it's mm -hmm. the, you could tell who has to carry the kit on their back over really bad terrain into some remote locations and who does not. And I always find it fascinating that the guys that really don't, that are carrying like seriously 200 pound ropes because they bring 200 foot of half inch line and some all this other crazy stuff are the ones that are the most vocal and critiquing guys that are doing what we'll call the more traditional backcountry alpine whatever term you want to put to it technical rescue right where guys like mike and i are like hey cool hey agency you want to buy some nine mil technora stuff so that we can reduce a buttload of just rope weight and yep. We want you to switch over to these devices because they're smaller, they're lighter, and they're actually better than the old ones you have that weigh 15 pounds a piece. And if that's all you're bringing, just leave it and we'll do something else more traditional. Yep. And I find it fascinating that they're the ones that like, 
Oh my God, this is the most unsafe thing I've ever seen. What if that tree should suddenly come down? And when Mike and I are out there teaching tech rescue with folks, we always talk about the magic of apparating trees. Yeah, theoretically, a tree could be pulled out, right? But in that same instance, you chose a bad tree to begin with. Yeah. Because a tree that's got like a big 24 inch diameter and a solid looking root base is not suddenly just coming out of the ground because you put 600 pounds of human on it. Right. It just, right. these things don't happen. And then there are redundant anchor systems, blah, blah, blah. But because you're not using your Arizona vortex connected to a steel I-beam, all of a sudden it's like, my God, you're all going to die. And it's like, well, actually, no, this is way gooder. And if you had a chance to practice like this, you <laughs> might just see that. And I'm sure Mike, I've, no, I've seen it with some of the trainings in our local area. And I'm sure Mike has in uh, some of his more diverse teaching opportunities he's had over the last few years is when you had somebody that was brought up in that environment and they're suddenly shown what small groups with more minimal gear can do and they're just as capable and the kit is not even half the weight, it's considerably less than that. They're like, Oh my God, I can't believe we ever did it the other way before. You know, and it's, I, it just always baffles me that it's pretty easy to sit there when you're wearing, you're like, your harness weighs 12 pounds, dude. Like, what are you worried about your, the backcountry wilderness guys? And I'm wearing just a, oh, I'm more, and mine's actually a purpose built backcountry rescue type harness, but it's like, right. Don't concern yourself with the kit I have. It just, and you have to look at it from a perspective of, is the technique safe? It is it sound and will it work? And if the answer to all those is, well, yes, then cool. Let's do this. I so think for you folks that are I out there, the terminology just, that, yeah. that, uh, that the military uses or military type folk would use is equipment fit for the purpose of the mission. Right? Yeah. Like the NFPA for those that think the NFPA writes standards for how to do these things is a standards body that is largely motivated by the income generated by producing standards that allow for the reduction of risk and insurance costs. They are not in the business of the best way to solve a problem. That is not to say that the NFPA is not a very useful organization, but you have to understand the task and purpose. And they make rules like triple redundant ropes and all the things. It turns out, I'm just, I'll just say this and we'll do a podcast about this later. But if it turns, it, it turns out that if the one rope you have doesn't break, the second one wasn't very useful. <laughs> so if you put what? your focus into not having the first rope break, you don't need three or four other ropes to also protect you in case it fails. There is a, there's a level of risk when you get into a vertical environment that you have to take, and it is a matter of assessing for risk. What often gets lost, since we're talking about carrying a bunch of crap into the backcountry, what often gets lost in calculation is the balance, the dichotomy of carrying all the extra stuff versus the number of people and the amount of energy and time and effort it takes to carry all of the stuff versus taking less stuff and being more succinct and expert in your uses of the stuff to do the job. There you go. That might become a t-shirt and three people in the world will understand it, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
I'd say offhand, there's 12 of us that would understand that immediately. Yeah. There's a whole European right. community that would be like, yes. Yes. Um, they also have LifePack 35s or whatever, too, because they don't have <laughs> all of the regulatory standards of the U.S. Yeah. to wow. maintain 20-year-old technology. But at least it's not for Philips. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I'll stop so, ranting about that. Yeah. So this really, so folks, if you're on the tech rescue side and you've heard of things like single rope techniques, right? That is literally what we're talking about. Like a single rope to do a thing. Uh, mm -hmm. In my personal opinion, in this opinion, bit of actual research and reading on this topic, plus actual observation and performance of these things, if you're beyond two ropes, what is going on? Are we really expecting the apocalypse to occur while this rescue is going on? And I will say that I have watched local fire agencies for one man requires three ropes. His primary rope for his ascent and descent, a secondary belay line, and a third line that he's attaching his goddamn Petzl ASAP to. Mm. <laughs> If you've already got him on a second belay line that's hard tied into his freaking 18 pound industrial, I work at heights harness. Why do you need a third line with another redundant safety item on it? Like I'd like, which one of your ropes do you really think is going to fail with that single 200? Okay. We'll call him a 300 pound firefighter on it. The smallest rope I have, I think is still a 14 kilonewton or not 14, uh, whatever, something 20, something kilonewton rated rope. Like. Holy Christ, people. Like, it's already going to withstand enough force that you're good with the one. Okay, you want to be super safe and make sure he's on a second one just in case. What if he loses consciousness and things like that? Yeah. Oh, it gets ridiculous. He gets, and I, I always get that one from some of the folks Mike and I work with. They're like, oh, but what if you suddenly uh, lose consciousness on the way down? Then I burn in, dude goes back to uh, the movie black hawk down with mm -hmm. old hoot you know showing his trigger finger this is my safety right my safety yeah so if i'm using what we'll call a, a a traditional descent device like i'll use a scarab pretty regular or i go down on an old school munther hitch right or an italian hitch for those of you of the european flavor <laughs> my safety is my break hand if something should happen where i suddenly lose consciousness and now i'm it's not quite a free fall, but you're going to start going a pretty good clip right until something tangles up and slows you down or the earth helps. D don't let it go of the road, right? When I went through a military climbing course many, many moons ago, and we were doing our climbing phase, and we're actually doing lead climbing, normal pro and all that other stuff. And the advice given was, you won't fall if you don't let go. <laughs> it's like, true. As you're your fingernails are digging into that little quarter inch ledge. You're like, great advice. Thanks. Anything better than that? No, that's pretty much it. It's like, okay. So I think we also mantra, learned that in, in Black Hawk Down, right? Like you won't uh, fall out the helicopter if you. <laughs> that's true. If you keep hold of the black, uh, fast rope, things are a lot better. Um, fuck fast roping. Uh, I, yeah. I'd I've never, heard it hurts. Like there's nothing Fast roping sucks. It. I've never known anybody like. So. For all my friends who are static line, low level, round military parachute guys, I don't know anybody that would rather fast rope than do a, a low level static line round parachute jump. 
right? It's just a better landing. Fast roping is just, it was really designed as a controlled vertical fall, right? There's, <laughs> even with the newer, lighter kit, you're just, it just sucks, right? I've seen more broken ankles <clears throat> fast roping than parachuting. Yeah. Anyway, that's another side tangent. So anyways, yeah. it's cool. Rope people, backcountry rope rescue folks, don't be scared. Um, and if you run a backcountry rescue course and you say, we strictly adhere to NFPA standards or we follow the NFPA standards, you're kind of turning a lot of people off, right? Because I'm not saying you're running a bad course or what you teach is wrong. You're, you're, the people, I think the, the customer base you're trying to attract Putting out statements like that is not helping you come off as somebody that's showing techniques and equipment that people who work in the backcountry want to use or be involved with necessarily. Now, th there's some caveats to that, obviously, and we're not going to get into that. But like Mike said, the NFPA is something that fire agencies voluntarily adopt. It's not like it's a national standard that all fire agencies do use and do follow. Um, it's kind of like states that use the national registry for certification. Some states use it. Uh, some states do not. Uh, I think last count, 48 <laughs> of the 50 states use it at least for initial certification at all levels. Uh, and then if you maintain your registry after that, the states don't care. They're like, cool. As long as you maintain yep. whatever state you're in, their state certification, that's all they really care about because that's where you're licensed to practice. And some states are like, we don't care about nothing but our own. And those states suck, especially if you try to use reciprocity to go over there as a provider from one place to another because they don't care. But that's another story. Maybe we'll talk about that. Maybe we'll but, talk about that too. All right. Uh, yeah. Should we quit venting? Yes. Yeah, so th those were the or three. Or do you have more on your list? No, no. Those were the three. List, we should do it. But... No, no. We'll save that. Those were the big okay. three that. Uh, we just wanted to talk about today, right? Like the, and these are just, again, some of you are going to listen to this and go, I, what? Right. But the random, like, why, why are you wearing helmets when you have no need for a helmet? Don't go into the woods unprepared for God's sake, especially if you're, especially if you're part of the rescue team, whether that's standard ground search and rescue, looking for lost people or part of response to extricate somebody who has already been injured. And then of course, some of the random, Hey, rope guys. Like start thinking outside the box when it comes to the rope kit you're using. Don't be poo-pooing people because they're wearing lightweight climbing sit harnesses and not NFPA rated full body harnesses that are designed for people washing windows 40 floors up uh, and the associated safety accoutrement that goes with that and the excess of ropes because safety and shit. So those are the big three. And I'm sure yeah. we'll come up with more of these. Uh, we already have a small list, but we'll see what happens from this on future episodes. Because safety and shit. Because safety right. and shit. I've already thought of three more things that I want to talk about later. So we'll make that another yeah. episode. Because we're, we're 45 minutes into this thing. So, yeah. all right. With if you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMS OTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode. 
Thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.